Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Um, you know, we're, we're returning here to our study this week. Last week was an introduction. I would encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and watch it as it provides an overview of the importance, of the significance of the book of Genesis, especially for our world today. Genesis has always been significant, but in our culture today, I think Genesis lends itself to a great deal of understanding regarding many things that we're facing in our culture today. Uh, As a quick refresher, remember the word Genesis refers to beginning uh, or origins. Genesis is a book of beginnings. In Genesis, we have our answers to the creation of the world, to all that is in it. We have the origins of all life, of family, of marriage. We have the origin of death, of sin, and of salvation, praise God. Uh, We have uh, an understanding in Genesis of our need for God. In Genesis, we see God's promises to humanity. There is so much that we find in Genesis. Truly, we find so many of the answers to life's biggest questions. Questions like, why are we here? What is the purpose of my life? Uh, What is this world all about? We find these things in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis, at the very beginning of the book, the very beginning of the book of beginnings, that we encounter a creative and powerful God. A God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, Uh, who is everywhere present at all times, who in every way is just, yet also merciful, who is both unknowable, yet is personal and intimate and meets us right where we are, a God who is self-sufficient, who is self-sustaining, a God who is ever in pursuit of you, of me, the God who wants a relationship with us. Now, the book of Genesis, uh, the author is Moses. He's the one who's responsible for the first five books of the Bible, what we know as of as the Pentateuch. And uh, it was probably penned, written down uh, in the early to mid-1400 B.C., okay? So this would have been around the time that the Israelites were out in the wilderness, which also happened to be that time when Moses was regularly conversing with God which is pretty cool. As we look to Genesis 1, again, we've already considered the first verse here and the amazing words, in the beginning, God. This is how the word of God begins, and it couldn't be more fitting. As I stated last week, if you can accept the foundation of Scripture and God's creative power over the universe, if you can get past verse 1 and say, yes, I believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there is nothing, in my opinion, in the rest of Scripture that you'll have any issue with if you can put your faith and your trust in that. It makes sense. When you consider creation, when you even look at science, when you look at the theories that are out there today and you come back to the Word of God and you come back to Genesis, it makes sense. Now recall, those who take away from Scripture, which is a common issue today, especially as it relates to Genesis, those who want to take away from Genesis or question its authenticity or its validity, those who take away from Scripture inevitably develop a liberal theology that both erodes the authority of Scripture and, in my opinion, erodes their faith. 
inevitably their faith is going to be shaky when they're in a place where they need to truly depend on God and God's ability to meet their needs or to move in mighty and powerful ways in their life. If you have eroded the foundation that the Word of God stands on, you're going to struggle with everything else. And so we're going to dive here further into chapter 1 tonight, which really chapter 1 should go through chapter 2, verse 3. Okay, so in your Bibles, uh, chapter 1 really... Uh, should make its way into chapter 2, verse 3. That's kind of the entirety of the first chapter, and that's what we'll consider here tonight. And so let's go ahead and, and read together again. Let's just read the first five verses here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word here now, and we ask, Lord, by your spirit, you give us understanding, you bless our time in it here tonight. Lord, we know that your spirit has been at work, is moving, that you are in our midst, Lord, and we just ask that as we study your word, Lord, Uh, that we would take much from it, uh, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, to consider the truth of uh, your holy scriptures, Lord. And so bless our time uh, in this study here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've considered this verse now multiple times. We considered last week, in fact, the errors in the theory of evolution. So we, we dealt with that last week. You can go back and listen to that teaching if you want to consider a little bit more about what uh, I had to share about that last week. Um, there is aspects you can't, you inevitably, when you're studying Genesis, especially the first three chapters, you're going to deal with a little bit of science. You can't go through the six days of creation and not consider some of the theories that are out there from a scientific perspective. But it's not my intent to make this a scientific study. I'm not a scientist. Okay, so we're going to deal with some of these theories, but certainly you could go much, much deeper. I'm just going to hit on the surface level of some of the theories that people have uh, as in many ways they try to reconcile the creation account with uh, the theory of evolution and other perspectives that people have on the, uh, uh, the foundations of the universe. And so many people today, again, in an attempt to reconcile theories tied to evolution with the biblical creation account have come up with different suggestions, different theories, all of which really attempt to reconcile the belief uh, in an earth that is millions and, and billions of years old. That's where a lot of people have a hang-up when it comes to the creation account because they've been taught today that the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old, right? Now, one of the theories, and this, again, is a theory that, that is put forth that's trying to combine the creation account with an old earth, with aspects of evolution. One of the theories that is put forth is called the gap theory. Okay? This theory states that the, uh, the creation we read of here in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, may have taken place billions of years prior to what we read in verse 2. As we read then there, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. That there is a gap of billions of years between those two verses, okay? This is what some people uh, suggest. 
And that now, after billions of years, God is beginning to create in a new and different way. Um, This theory also suggests, because you would think, well, why is it that God is suddenly now creating again? Why is it that he's going to create something new? Well, it suggests that there's some sort of cataclysmic event that destroyed much of the first creation, requiring God to then exercise his creative powers later uh, in the account that we have in Genesis. Now, there's no proof for this, okay? There's no reason to think this other than to try and figure out, well, how can we take uh, a belief that in the geological record or the fossil record that the earth is so many billion years old and align it with this creation account. Well, there must be something that happened before. There must have been aspects of the earth that existed before the creation account that we have here in Genesis, and that allows us then to to sample things in the earth, to take fossil record, to take different things, and go, okay, well, that stuff's just super old, okay? And then eventually God created uh, new things, okay? Again, there... There's no reason for us to assume that. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that. This is entirely based off of secular scientists' belief uh, in the age of the earth. Now, the problems are obvious in this, especially as it relates to just Scripture doesn't give us any evidence to, to believe that or to think that. But the other thing here is that such a theory assumes that there was creation prior to this and then death and destruction before the biblical narrative that accounts for death and destruction. You see? Fossils. What are fossils? Old bones, right? Dead things. So if we're basing something on a fossil record that says it's billions of years old, and we say, well, this fossil record predates this, well, what does the creation account give us? It gives us the account of life as it was intended to be, and then sin, and then death. Romans 5.12 tells us that death entered through whom? Adam. Death came through Adam. How can we have death prior to this if the Bible is saying, here's when death came, right? Now, another theory, so that's the gap theory, that there's this just big chunk of time between these two verses. And another theory uh, that is really uh, intended to reconcile the supposed age of the earth is what's called the day-age theory. The day-age age theory. Now the debate here really is with whether the days spoken of in Genesis are literal days or not. This is probably one you've heard a good deal about where people say, yeah, I believe in six days of creation, but each of those days was probably a really long period of time. Now to my earlier statement here, the fossil record of the earth would suggest that death entered the world prior to the fall of man. And so this theory doesn't hold up either for the same reason because God gives us insight into when death entered, when destruction entered into the earth through Adam's sin. And so that theory doesn't hold up. Furthermore, as we're going to see in the account here in the first chapter, it's pretty clear that a day means a day. A day means a day. And as to the old age theories, we'll... We'll get there when we consider the worldwide flood. We're not going to deal with that tonight. But as far as some of the struggles that people have with what seems to be evidence today of an old earth, whether that's the fossil record or whether that's some of just the land masses and uh, in uh, uh, 
take the Grand Canyon, for example, and all of the different layers of rock that we see there that they say speaks to billions of years and all that stuff. Well, there's, there's a major worldwide event um, that, quite frankly, a lot of scientists who don't believe in God and don't believe in creation would agree would actually replicate some of those same things, and that is a cataclysmic worldwide flood that would create uh, many... Um, Many situations that would that would mirror what we also think would be you know billions and billions of years, but because of of the flood and the pressure of the water and just what's happening on the earth at that time, and so we're not going to get there tonight. We'll, we'll be there uh, in a couple of weeks, and so uh, so the day age theory, the gap theory, are two specific ones uh, that people like to look at to try and help them get a little comfortable with the creation account and the age of the earth. But the fact is. You don't, need to, you don't need to reconcile that. We can look at the creation account in Genesis and we can say, this is it. This is God's word to us. This is uh, the account of creation. And so we read in verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now here we see the initial state of God's creation. It, it's... Um, almost like a lump of clay here at this particular point, ready to be formed by the master potter, ready for, for God to enact his, his uh, creative abilities to begin to, to form the earth. And we see here that the Spirit, now this is the Hebrew word ruach, which means the breath of God. The breath of God, the, the Spirit is, is hovering, it says, over the waters. We can only in our, our minds begin to sort of picture what this might be. And and the word here for hovering over the waters actually is better translated as vibrating or fluttering over the waters. This is pretty cool, okay? This is the spirit, the breath of God, sort of vibrating over the waters, ready to begin to create, to form everything that we, that we know today, everything that we even take for granted today. And, and look at this. In verse 3 then, here it is. This is incredibly powerful. It says, Then God said. Then God said. And he said, Let there be light. And there was light. Just like that. Now, you, here's my personal opinion. And some people would agree with this, okay? but this is just me telling you my personal opinion. I think there is some truth to the Big Bang Theory, okay? Some people's faces are like, wait a second, what? I think this was it. I, th I mean, I cannot imagine any, this is the first, this, in Scripture, this is the first time, now granted, we're only three verses in, but this, we hear, it's, it's God, God speaks right here. This is the first time. This is the first place where it's recorded that God speaks. And when he speaks, it's not just like his voice is let, let there be light and somebody's like, ting, pulled the string on a light, right? That's not what this is. He says, let there be light. Notice here, we're gonna get to this later. He didn't create the sun yet. He didn't create the moon and the stars, the things we think create light. This is a light that's coming from him, that's coming from the heavens. And it's not just a light that he just sort of illuminates things. No, this first act here is God says, let there be light. This is God energizing creation. This is him kicking on the nuclear reactor. Okay? This is him plugging things in. Right? I mean, I think, I, 
my personal opinion, I'm like, that, that had to be that moment when somebody says, man, there's something that happened in space a long time ago, and it's like, it had to have been like a, this big explosion. I think this is it. I think it's at this moment that it just, and it just emanates, right? And it reverberates, and it still is today. Have you ever listened to space? It's pretty cool. You should sometime Google it, right? Go to Google. And, and, and there's different apps and things that you can kind of listen to what you're hearing out there. And basically what you hear in space is just, I think it's still his voice saying, let there be light, just making its way through the galaxies. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now again, this is the first place that we have a record of God speaking in the Bible. The first we read of his voice. And I want you to notice here that as he begins his creative work and he, he brings forth light, that the word of God, the very first word of God in the Bible brings light. Your word, O Lord, is a what? Lamp unto my feet. The very first act of creation, the very first words of God bring light into darkness. Now note here, for those who struggle with whether these are actual days, how God then describes his first act of creation. He says that the light is day and the dark is night. So the first day was morning and evening. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Are, are any of you familiar with that concept? That when the sun comes up, it's, it's morning, it's daytime. And then the sun goes down and you go, it's nighttime. And you get ready for a new day. It's really tough to understand, isn't it? But he just he can't possibly mean just a day. And you see, that's, that's the struggle that people have. But it's like, look, he, he says here, what would be a better way for God to describe for us the time it took for him in creation to say, it was a day, it was the first day, and then we go on to day two, and day three, and day four, and day five, and day six. It was a day. Now, also, and I mentioned this here, note here that light has come forth before the sun, before the moon, before the stars. Those things come later. I mentioned this because remember in Revelation recently, we read of a light that emanates throughout the New Jerusalem, that there's no more night and subsequently no need for the sun. And it's tough for us. I even said when we were studying Revelation, gosh, it's kind of interesting. Like, what's that, how's that going to work? What's, and, and of course, we have the account of uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, and he, he begins to reveal himself, and, and there's light that's coming from him. And I, I, in my opinion, this light here, which has really been the source of energy and light uh, since the beginning of creation, I think is that same type of light that's going to emanate in the New Jerusalem. Then God said, verse 6, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. 
So the evening and the morning were the second day. Day one is done. We've got light. We've got darkness. We've got day. We have night. And now we're into, into the second day. And it's only when you're reading Genesis that you say firmament that many times, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you don't say that word very often. Anybody use firmament very often? I didn't think so. Okay, so note again here that creation comes from the Word of God. All throughout here, he's speaking it into existence. It's the Word of God that speaks it into existence. And here on the second day, he takes what is still largely a watery mass, and he begins to separate the heavens from the earth, or the water above from the water below. Okay, now firmament, this word really is synonymous with heaven. It's not necessarily translated heaven, but the two can be sort of interchanged, okay? So when he talks about the firmaments, it would be okay for us to say he's, he's separating the heavens to some degree. The, the word firmament literally means an expanse or a thin stretched out space, now we know from our recent study in Revelation, especially as uh, we see the, the heavens coming down in uh, the new heaven and the new earth, uh, that there are three heavens in Scripture. We have the first heaven, which is the atmosphere. Okay, That's the area that we can see right now, out into the atmosphere. You've got space okay, and the galaxies. There's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the heavenly habitat of God, the, th the throne room of heaven. And so the firmament referred to here seems to be the atmosphere. Now this would make sense if it's just a, a, a vast watery expanse at this point, and now God begins to separate it so that you have water below, which we would know is what we see on earth as you look out over a lake or over a sea, and the water above that becomes part of the atmosphere. This is a concept that's not very foreign to us today because we're familiar with water being vaporized. There is water out there right now. For crying out loud, in Columbia, South Carolina, we know what it means to have water in the atmosphere, do we not? Right? It is not dry around here. It is very humid. Okay? And so this, this is something that shouldn't be foreign to us, this idea of God saying there's water above and there's water below. Okay? Now, it should be noted, though, that uh, it's not entirely the way that we understand it today. Okay? At this particular time, the atmosphere was somewhat different. Many people liken it to somewhat of a biosphere. And, and it's, it's not similar to the atmosphere that we know today and the way in which it holds its water because as we'll see in Genesis in chapter 2, verse 5, we know at this particular time there was no rain that fell upon the earth. Okay? Water uh, nurtured the plants right from the ground. Uh, it was able to, to nourish the plants that way. It's not until later on, uh, seemingly at the time of the flood, that it first started to rain. And so it's post-flood that the earth has now changed a little bit and there's an atmosphere like we know today. Okay? But the other thing is that in Psalm 148, it does seem like this type of atmosphere, this original atmosphere, will be restored in the new earth. Okay? which is kind of cool to think about what's being described right now is what we'll experience in the new earth. And so those of you uh, who love a good rainy day, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I don't know that there's going to be rainy days in eternity, okay? And so this is now, so now it, we've still got water everywhere, but now we have water that's, that, that's below and water that's above. And then God said, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So you can imagine now as there's just this vast ocean and now it's beginning to gather together 
and it's revealing dry land. And it was so. In verse 10, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Notice here that as God continues to create, he looks at what he's created, he looks at what he has made, and he says, it's good. It's good. Now, the creative word of God and the fact that we are dealing with sequential order here is is important to understand as well. As we see here, it says, then God said, and then God said. Uh, We need to to understand that there is an order to his creation as recorded in Genesis. And by the way, it contradicts most of evolutional theory, especially as we get into uh, the sea creatures and the plants and the the animals and the, the, the beasts of the earth. I mean, much of that contradicts what has been proposed in evolution. The order of the biblical creation account does not align with evolutional theory. Now, that's neither here nor there for the evolutionist, okay? They would expect, we we would expect that, right? But for the professing Christian who wants to reconcile both, who wants to accept evolution and the biblical account and try to figure out how to make those two things work, good luck on that. It doesn't work. So here we see that God separates the waters and brings forth the dry land. Now the land masses and the seas at this time look different than what they do now. The flood has changed the layout, the topography, the position of land masses. So again, the way, the way that land looked and the way the seas looked at this point in time in creation is different than what we see now. The flood came in and changed all of that. Now, there's theories around that. Some of you have heard of the the term Pangea, uh, this belief that all of the different continents that we have today were at one point sort of together. And if you sort of squeeze them together on the map, it looks almost like they sort of fit together. I'm not necessarily discounting that. That may be exactly uh, what happened at that particular time. Uh, Certainly, we believe that the the flood changed uh, where land was on the earth. In verse 11, it says, Then God said, so here it is, sequential again, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the act of creation is absolutely incredible here. And yes, this makes it tough for some people to believe because when you go and you plant something at home, many of you this year have gardens. you got your corona gardens, Right? And you've planted things and you put the seeds in the ground and, and, and you're just anxiously waiting, right? And slowly but surely, the little thing sprouts up and then it starts to grow. And then some things grow really fast. We this year got those bulbs, those elephant ear plants. Those things are incredible. At first, it looked like there was like a, a, a unicorn coming out of the ground, okay? Just this spiral thing that was like right out of the ground. And then... All of a sudden, it just like exploded, and now this thing's this big, and, 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 and you got this huge leaf, right? And so some things you look at, it's like, that is amazing. How's it growing that fast? I want to just sit there and watch it and see if you could if you just watch it go. But the fact is, when people look at this and they think, man, just like that, mature trees that bore fruit around the earth, yes, this is God. He created you. He speaks these things into existence. And yes, these are mature things. God didn't plant seeds. Many people say, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I think it was the chicken. <laughs> and it laid an egg, right? Or fruit trees that bore fruit. And then from there, you can take the seeds and plant them and do more with it. But, but boom, here we go. 
And the earth brought forth grass, and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. This is all one day. The dry land and then the vegetation, all in one day. And notice here how even amongst the plants and the trees, it's according to their kind. Okay? It's according to their kind. Again, there is order in God's creation. There is order in His creation. There is distinction between His creation. All of His creation is glorious. But even within the plants and the trees, there is a particular kind. And while science has attempted to make variations and to splice and to genetically modify, it inevitably has consequences. You could say, no, no, today we can go and we can get, you know, a, a, a GMO watermelon and it doesn't have seeds in it and it's big and it's mass produced and everything else. And this isn't a statement on GMO, okay? We're not going there, people. But the fact is, we think it's all great and we look at what we've done. And, and, and you could certainly argue it's done many things for uh, our ability to, to feed, um, uh, to feed the masses throughout the world, right? But... Why is there suddenly a, a, a growth, no pun intended, in, uh, in what do they call them? Heirloom fruits and vegetables. You know what those are? Anybody know what those are? Yeah? Why are they? Tell, why do you want one? Because it's just cool? They're rare? Original seeds and they what? They taste better. They taste better. Man, I can remember two years ago, we got some just very natural like uh, strawberries. I mean, these things looked weak, man. They were puny, and they were just sort of, it was like, well, those don't look like the strawberries at Sam's Club, you know. I, bet, I, I expect my strawberry to be fill both hands, right, and be perfect. But man, you bit into these strawberries, and it was like, holy smokes, that's fantastic. That's the best tasting strawberry ever. And you see, God had purpose in his design, now here's the other thing as we think about here, here trees and everything are coming onto the earth and, and the earth is, is no doubt at this point increasingly beautiful as his, as his creation expands. But I think for a moment here as I think about this and, you, and, and of course there's people today who go out into, the, into, the, into nature and, and there's these pagan religions and different folks, you know, and some, some you may just call them a tree hugger, right? And uh, uh, listen, Christians can be about the environment. That's fine. It's, it's good for us to be good stewards of the creation. But some people take it to another level, right? And there's even some uh, religions that, that worship the trees, and that worship creation. And it's not wrong for us to see the glory in creation, but what is this telling us here? That there's a creator. It's not creation itself, but one who created it. It's the creator who's to be worshiped. And then God said in verse 14, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God sent, set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. It's the fourth day of creation here. And you may be asking the question here as we started to go through this, the, the act of creating here on the fourth day. This is that God brought forth light. 
Now, we know that based off of the first day of creation that he energized creation on the first day. He brought forth light on the first day. But now here we see that he's, he's creating the, the greater light for the day. We know that is the sun and the, the lesser light for the night, the moon and the stars. What gives? And yes, God did bring forth light and energy at the beginning of creation. What does he say is the reason for these lights? Does he say, I'm bringing forth this light because it's just been super dark and I haven't done my job yet? Yeah, to divide the day, for seasons, for navigation, okay? He's, he gives us these things. He says, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, to divide the, the, the night and the day. And, and what this tells us here probably is that this light, this energy that comes from God there at the beginning of creation makes its way through the heavens to the earth Okay, but now in whatever way it sort of powers the stars and the sun and the and everything that we see out in the galaxies, and that again in the time of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, when we experience that light, in my opinion, that's what that light is. Again, we'll we'll see that it's that's the light, that's the power that's been behind creation all along. But the important thing for us to understand here is that he gives us the sun, he gives us the moon, he gives us the stars, so that yes, they they can provide light, he uses them to provide light, but that they can provide us signs and seasons and navigation. And we think about, I mean, that's what's amazing about the stars, right? Is that for thousands of years, people have been getting places based off of these stars, the same stars that we can go out tonight if it's a clear night and you can see some of those same stars. And they're just as trustworthy as they've ever been. Now, one of the things that people like to really point out here, uh, critics of the Bible, uh, they go, see, see, this is, this is inaccurate. Uh, because here it says that the moon is referred to as a light. And what we know about the moon is, is what? Is the moon a light? What does the moon do? It reflects the sun, right? You go, oh, you caught me. There's a contradiction in the Bible, isn't there? Let me ask you this. And those same people who like to be a critic of this, when you're out at night, maybe you're sitting on your front porch. It's in the south, so you're drinking some sweet tea. And you're out there, and that big old moon is shining bright down in the yard and onto the porch. Or, or better yet, maybe, and I've never done this, <laughs> but maybe you're dancing out there at night. There's a song about this, I believe. And if you're out there dancing, what might you be saying you're dancing by? The light of the moon. Oh! fools how dare you say that right no what you should say is oh isn't the sun's reflection on the moon so bright tonight because everybody does that right somebody in here does it right and you're just not wanting to raise your hand right now you're just like well i'm gonna get made fun of because i i like to be very literal about that the point is this we we often i mean how many how many scientists today who want to say that the bible contradicts itself would refer to a beautiful sunset Really? Did the sun set? No. Oh, what a beautiful rotation of the earth this evening. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to be literal about it, right? You see what's happening? This goes back to the point from last week, as they say, well, I wish that Genesis would have been just been written scientifically. Well, I know you don't want me to go back and talk to you about the atoms, okay? This is God communicating with Moses, okay? Moses, who said originally when he was called, uh, God, I don't, uh, I don't talk very well, Right? I mean, that's how the whole relationship started there. 
Now, I'm not saying Moses was dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but do you think that God was taking it easy on the guy and saying, here's the description of how this all came to be? Oh, I got it. Okay, this makes sense. People are silly. And so we see here that God gives us, in their gifts, I mean all of it, because he looks at it and he says, this is good. It's beautiful. And then God said in verse 20, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. There it is again. There's distinction in his creation. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So up to this point, days one through four, uh, everything that's happened, all the creation that's occurred, yet earth is still empty of its inhabitants. And it's on day five here that God now starts to fill it with those who will inhabit and benefit from the earth that he's created. And so he begins the act of creating creatures, and first of which are from the sea and the air. Now, some translations, your own Bibles, may say that uh, it says, let the waters bring forth. That would be a mistranslation, okay? That's, that's not accurate there. It's not the end of the world. But the fact that some translations say, let the waters abound is more accurate and also speaks to the quantity uh, that evidently there is considerable masses of sea creatures that begin to fill uh, the sea at this time. Now this is the first time in the creation account, differently than plants and, and the other things that we see in creation, this is the first time that we see the Hebrew word nefesh, which is used of life. As it says that he brings forth living creatures. And this particular Hebrew word speaks of a soul. This speaks of a soul. Now right away you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean like fish and birds go to heaven? No. Okay. We are made of soul, spirit, and body. But the fact of the matter is, according to Scripture, these living creatures do have a soul. Now Ecclesiastes tells us that for animals, that their soul, when they die, goes back into the earth. Okay. Differently than man. But what is cool here is that we can absolutely see, based off of Scripture, that Living things are special. They're set apart, okay? And, and really, our distinction here could almost be, does it have eyes? Because yes, we have plants, right, that are, that are alive, they're moving, they're growing, they're doing that different thing, but God did not refer to them with the word nefesh, stating that they have a soul, but, but these other animals, the birds and the, and the fish, and isn't there something unique about when you can look into the eyes of something? Even an animal, you can communicate. There's, there's something behind those eyes, and we've often said the, the eyes are the window to the soul. And so this means that in some respects, the, the birds and the sea creatures, and as we'll see here following, those that are land animals, they are similar to man, and we are similar to them. Right? And for you animal lovers, I think it's biblical that you love animals. We know Scripture says a kind man takes good care of his animals. They are living creatures that are possessing life just as man and they're made from the earth like man like adam yeah. it's ecclesiastes 321 in case you wanted to write that down that gives us insight in the fact that animals don't have a soul that goes to heaven okay but nevertheless they're special 
Now, verse 21 also says here, some of you like this, you like this verse. It says, great sea creatures. And those of you that have done your homework before, or maybe you've gone to the Creation Museum and you've seen it there as well. This is the Hebrew word tannin. And it means great sea creature, also translated sea monster, and also translated most frequently, you ready? Dragon. Dun, dun, dun. The most common use of tannin, or the most common translation of this particular word is dragon. Pretty cool. Do I think, Pastor Brennan, do you think there were dragons in history? Yes, I do. Not the how to train your dragon, though, kind. I don't know that they necessarily all flew or breathed fire. I don't know. Maybe they did. What do you suppose? Because here's the thing. The, mo- the, the evidence, most of the evidence that we have for dragons in terms of later cultures, is oral tradition uh, that was passed down, even some written um, or uh, pictures, pictorial tradition. Uh, what do you think they were talking about? Dinosaurs, right? That's most likely the case, is that absolutely, we have fossils from them today, and so chances are that this speaks of uh, the dinosaurs that were around at this particular time. Now, Psalm 104:26 also speaks of, the psalmist here, speaks of some great sea creature known as what? Anybody? Leviathan. Yep. And so what we know is that at this particular time, there was incredible sea creatures and and land creatures um, all over the earth. And um, it it, has to be pretty awesome to think, particularly because at this time, there was no predatory animals. So we think, when we think dinosaur, we think, I saw Jurassic Park. And I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't know why they keep going back to that island, but they've done it like 10 times now, right? They just keep going back to the island over and over again, and every time people get eaten, right? But at this particular time, you could walk up to a T-Rex and you could just tickle him under the chin, right? And he'd probably lay down and just play around, right? That's also in a movie, wasn't it? What movie is that? Meet the Robinsons. Yeah, this tickling the little... It's the one that says I have a big head and little arms, and that's pretty funny. Uh, anyhow, I digress. Um... This is awesome. I mean, think about the things that God is creating that are on the earth. And he looks at it. God looks at it. He says, this is good. You almost get the sense here. I mean, God's not prideful, right? Okay, so my, my, you've got to be careful. You don't want to try and impersonate God. But I can't help but think, I mean, the way that if, 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 <laughs> if I make something, you better believe, and Ashley can attest to it. I'd be like, Ashley, come look at this. I just want you to look at it. Look, look. Tell me I did a good job, <laughs> right? And you're like, you take a step back and you're like, oh, that's good, right? I mean, I got to think that God was excited that in the act of creating, and, and, and it's Elohim, which is plural, it's, it gives us insight into Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here shortly we're going to see that God now, he shifts gears a little bit here in the act of creating us, and he says, oh, let us Make man in God's image. I mean, there's, there's a party going on here. There's a council that's happening here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're looking at this and they're saying, this is, this is good. This is good. And then God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It is the sixth and final day of God's creative work. And here included in this day are the land creatures as well as mankind. 
Now there is significance in this in terms of the order of his creation, I think. It's not to suggest that the fish and the birds are lesser, but I think there's something special about God creating this particular classification of animal in the same day and in a similar fashion as to how he creates man. In fact, uh, you know, earlier in the other, uh, on the other days, uh, it says that God created, whereas we see different language here for these animals as well as for man where it says, and God made. It's not to suggest that God isn't involved in every aspect of creation, but there seems to be some bit of a change here as God almost is more personally involved in the fashioning of this aspect of his creation. Now there's also category here, as I've alluded to already, God has made clear that, that there's distinction in his creation and the way in which he has made things. It doesn't mean that there's one that's that's lesser or greater uh, necessarily, other than, of course, those who he's given life to, a soul to, but, uh, but that there's the, he's made them a particular way and for a particular purpose. And now here he gives us really three categories that we see here. The first of which he says there's cattle according to its kind. Now when we think of cattle, we probably think, for the most part, cows, right? Whether dairy cows or, or beef, whatever the case may be. But, but cattle probably refers more so to all of the types of animals that are more domesticated in nature. Okay? Animals that are really going to be for our benefit. I think, in my opinion, you could probably put in the category of cattle everything from a horse to a cow to a dog. Uh, to, to, did you say goats? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those types of things that are going to be very much for our benefit and, and even ones that you sort of form a little bit of a relationship what, with, right? Um, now, that's cattle, and then, of course, you have uh, creeping things. What, what are going to be your creeping things? Snakes, spiders, reptiles, right? Those types of things. Um, now, were there snakes at this particular time? Was the snake purely about uh, Satan? Um, I don't think so. I think there were snakes before that he appears as a snake, but then the punishment is, of course, that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be on the ground now. You're going to be more of a creeping thing, and so maybe snakes sort of walked upright a little bit at that time. We don't know. There's some crazy things we'll figure out someday. Um, and so that's the creeping thing, right? And then the beast, which is probably more the things like what you would see at the zoo, right? So these are going to be the, don't bring the elephant in the house, okay? Um, the dinosaurs and different things like that. So God saw that it was good, and, and then this is likely only one small portion of the six days. Now he moves into the final act of his creation, which is quite significant because it's mankind. And this takes place on the sixth day as well. Now as we get into chapter 2 next week, or actually the week after because of our event, what we'll see is that uh, in chapter 2, a lot of people say, oh, see, there's another inconsistency here because now you're getting somewhat of a different creation account. What begins in chapter 2, verse 4, is a process that's called recapitulation, which means that God goes back and he begins to tell a story again, but with a different perspective. Why? Because what we're going to have here is a very simple statement about God saying, let us make man in our image. And inevitably, and Moses had to have asked the same question too, to say, God, I need a little bit more. <laughs> I want to understand a little bit more about how you did that. And that's what we get in chapter 2. We get a little more detail. We zoom in, if you will, on this particular act of creation. And so in verse 26 it says, Then God said, Let us, now this is new, right? Let us, here we are speaking in plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. 
While it doesn't expressly state here that this is the Trinity, this is what gives us insight. Elohim, again, is a plural word, but it's, yet it's used in the singular here. As then God said, it was God singular, but saying, let us. He's not talking to the angels here. Angels were part of his creation. In fact, angels probably came between day two and day three. And we can get into that next week. Uh, so here he's speaking in the plural. And this is evidence of the triune Godhead who, differently than before, now says we're going to make man. And he's going to be made after our own image. We're going to make him like us. Set apart from the rest of creation. Unique, distinctive. And though mankind would share many similarities with the other living creatures, yet be much more complex, he alone, man alone, would be made in the image of God. And then, as the rest of verse 26 says, would have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so along with man's unique image and creation, he is also given authority over creation. And when I say man there, that of course is, is man and woman. That is, the, that is the general term for mankind. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in his image. Uh, mankind is, is, again, general, including both men and women, both part of God's significant creative act. Men and women equal in every way, yet with distinct roles that are for his purposes and for his glory, as we will see. And they're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And this is what informs us regarding our pro-life ethic. And when we say pro-life, yes, that has to do with, with abortion. But, but pro-life is about, as we always say, from womb to the tomb. It's about the preborn life and it's about every stage of life. Why? Because every life matters and is made in the image of God, right? And so as, as believers, this is what we are to live out. This is what we are to pursue. Now here's the question. How do we bear God's image as we start to wrap things up? There are numerous scriptures we look to here tonight. We don't necessarily have the time, but the fact is we see throughout scripture that God sees, God hears, God tastes, God speaks. There are considerable ways in which we mirror God as described within the Bible. Now, many people would say, yeah, but the, the animals do that too. The animals can see, they can hear, they can smell, they can speak, sort of. Yet we are different in our capacity. We walk upright. We, uh, our, our motor control, our, uh, our ability to, to handle things, the way our, our fingers work, the way our, the, the way our, our eyes work. The, yes, we speak and we speak differently. We speak in an articulate way where we can communicate and, and we can understand and, and we are the only ones that you see in all of creation who have the capacity to worship God, to know him and to worship him and to articulate that worship. Yeah. Furthermore, Though it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that he came in the likeness of men. <laughs> you don't think that God, in his foreknowledge, knowing all things, that when he created us in his image, that is it really accurate for us to say that he came in the likeness of men entirely? Yes, Jesus, when he came, came and was like us in every way. Yet it's one of those sort of circular reasoning things where we have to go, man, in many respects, he came, Jesus came also in the image of himself, in the image of God in many respects. Now, God, we know, does not, uh, does not bear uh, an image in the way that, 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 that we, kind of, you know, God, doesn't, God is not contained within a body, yet when he sent his son, he came in a body that was designed by God. 
right? And uh, uh, every time we see throughout Scripture that God comes and, and appears to man, how does he come? As a man. Or as an angel that, was look, that looked like a man, right? Um, and so clearly there is something significant about our design that God says, yes, this, this is made in my image. And we don't fully understand that, but we trust it. And then God blessed them, verse 28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so again here, authority, dominion. Now this is not conquest in a violent sense because that was not necessary at this time. This was a blessing. This was a gift. This was saying this is yours. You have control over it. And the first command that he's given is to be fruitful and multiply, to have kids, to fill the earth. There's been a lot of concern over many years of, 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 of population growth and population control. And, and while there are certainly areas that have struggled because of famine and everything else, don't tell me for a second that this world that God has created isn't capable of taking care of the population. It's just our mismanagement of it. In fact, I think this world can handle a whole lot more you know, because it's created by God. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This is the glory of his creation, the, the sort of pinnacle of his creation. And here in this last part, he gives instruction both to the creeping things, or the creatures that are on the earth, as well as to mankind. And what he describes here, though it may be so sad for many of you, is one terrific salad bar. Okay? <laughs> That's what we're given. Every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, is yours. Every tree whose fruit yields seed. There was, there was nothing in there about the surf and turf, right? Just unlimited trips to the salad bar. We were vegan originally. There was no predatory animals at this time. I've already mentioned that. And uh, it seems to be that this will be the case again in the millennial reign uh, and into the new heaven and the new earth. That's somewhat contested. When do we start eating meat? It was after the flood. In Genesis 9, verse 3, the permission was given to eat meat. I don't know, in God's wisdom, why he allowed that. He was like, man, things are going to die, and that'll taste good, so just eat it, right? Be good stewards. I mean, that's one of the things we can look at about Native American tribes in the U.S., right? And in, in, in the, in the, just the desire to use every bit of, of, of the earth. Um, so some people suggest that's why it is. But nevertheless, we're given permission to eat meat in Genesis 9.3. In Isaiah 25.6, we think to be referencing the millennium, it does speak of, of a great meal there and meats of many kind. Yet in Revelation 21.4, it says that there's not going to be any more death. Maybe that just applies to us and there will be of animals. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a little confusing, so we don't know for sure whether there's going to be actual uh, you know, like a steak in heaven. Um, maybe Burger King's on to something with this whole uh, incredible Whopper or whatever they call it, impossible Whopper, right? And, and actually, I've read commentaries that have suggested that very thing, that w what, what's to suggest that God can't create some type, and he, he brought manna from heaven, right? So who knows what, what this, this meat substitute could be. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, these are just fun things for us to consider. Thus the heavens and the earth is chapter 2, verse 1, and all the host of them were finished. Six days of creation, okay? Six. That's why, you know, a lot of times we talk about seven, and people say, oh, seven days. It's six days of actual creating. Seven day, on the seventh day, 
God ended his work, verse 2, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Note here it does not say that God was so tired that he needed to take a break. Okay, It says that he, in effect, chose to rest. And I have no doubt that this was less for him and more for us. I firmly believe that God in his infinite creative power could have done every one of these things on day one. That he probably could have done it with one word. And everything's there. But I think he gives us the creation account and he did it this way so that we could see his order, so that we could see his design, and that we could take a pattern from the very beginning of time for our week. And that we could also see that, yes, rest is necessary. A Sabbath's rest, it's sanctified. Now the Sabbath, as we know in Scripture, Jesus taught us this, that, man, that Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath, lest we become legalistic. Okay? But the fact is, stop beating yourself up or telling yourself that you just can't stop and rest. It's biblical. Work hard and then rest. Work hard, take a step back, oh yes, it's good, I did a good job. I brought glory to the Lord in everything that I did, just as He commands me to in Scripture. Colossians 3.23 and Colossians 3.16. But now I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a day to rest, a Sabbath rest. And we can, we can study that throughout Scripture as well. The times when Israel was obedient in their Sabbath rest and the times when they were disobedient and the consequences of being, being disobedient and not resting. Okay, So Sabbath rest is biblical. Isn't his creation amazing? Um, now as I mentioned, when we come back to this again, we'll go through Genesis 2 and we'll consider many of the same things, but uh, zoomed in a little bit. Look at it a little bit more closely, particularly the account of how he creates man and how he creates woman. And that one's pretty fun, i got to tell you. <laughs> That's a pretty fun passage to consider, how woman is brought forth. And so, uh, pretty awesome. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we pause and uh, hear, and, and Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the insight it gives us, the, the, the answers that it gives us. But um, Lord, we thank you for creation. Lord, that though you know us and you know our wickedness, Lord, you know what we're capable of, Lord, you created anyway. And you created with a plan for salvation, Lord. You knew our tendency towards sin and, and you said, I, I love them so much and I wanted to create them. And, and Lord, you did it with a plan in mind for our redemption, Lord, uh, to reconcile us unto you. And, and Lord, we're just so grateful for how you care for us, how you bless us. Lord, even as we think about the, the birds of the air and and uh, the creatures of the sea, Lord, as, we, as we'll read here eventually in our study of Matthew, Lord, that, that there's not a sparrow that falls from the heavens, Lord, that you don't take notice of. There's not a bird, Lord, out there that we can't see where your earth provides for their every need, and yet you tell us in Scripture, Lord, that we are so much more glorious than they are, so much more special in your eyes. That should cause us, Lord, to truly consider what it is that you've done for us, how you care for us, how you love us, Lord. It should motivate us to even more so just surrender our lives to you. And I pray that be the case for each of us here tonight, those watching, myself included, Lord, that we would be a people continually in awe of your creation, knowing, Lord, also that this creation has fallen, that it doesn't even begin to hold a candle likely to what it is that you created originally and what you'll bring again. Uh, so, Father, just do a work in our, our lives to, to open our eyes to the things of you and uh, to cause us, Lord, to, to just marvel at all that you've done for us. We love you, Lord, and praise you. And I pray for each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.